All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, always thankful to be able to worship uh, and share God's word uh, on the Sunday worship with you. And if you're new or visiting, uh, welcome again. My name is Sam. I'm part of the pastoral staff here. Now, let's get straight into it. If you're just joining us, we are a little more than halfway through a series we've been going through through the book of Nehemiah. And just to kind of catch us up, whether you're new or whether you've been with us, a major shift is going to happen uh, in the chapter that we enter today. A major shift in the narrative or the focus of the story, if I can put it that way. Uh, to remind of the context, uh, basically up to chapter 8, Nehemiah has been all about the wall. That's all it's been about. Uh, everything from chapters 1 through 7, if you had to boil it down into a sentence, it's the walls of Jerusalem are fallen. We need to rebuild the wall. And so Nehemiah has been this central character and figure that God has been using to rally the people together, to come together, and despite opposition, persevere through and rebuild the broken down walls of Jerusalem. And if you're curious, what's the big deal about walls? Again, Every city, if they wanted to be legitimate, they needed protection, they needed security, and walls were kind of the physical manifestation of what that looked like. But what we're going to see starting today and for the rest of the series actually is that if God's intention is to rebuild and renew his people, clearly it's not just about the walls or the exterior. Because if it was just about the walls, Nehemiah would have ended in chapter 7. But like I said, we're just about halfway through. So clearly there's a lot more going on to what God has in mind when it comes to building up his people. And I think that's just a good food for thought for us to consider that. I think our church, we care about a lot of our walls. Like we care about making sure that, I mean, our announcements, they're, they're very, I think, professional as best as we can. We have kind of the necessary programs and structures there. But if I can make it very blunt, walls don't create the people of God. Uh, the people who house the walls and the spiritual state of those people, that's what really constitutes the people of God. And so if I can put it a summary, uh, if the first half of Nehemiah was focused on the rebuilding of the walls, the second half starting from today in chapter 8, it's all about how does God now restore and renew the people within the walls. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. That will be our text for today. Can't go over the whole chapter, but we'll focus on verse 1 through 12. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 through 12. And it's also going to show on the screen behind me if you don't have your Bibles with you. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1, this is the reading of God's word. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gates. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it. Facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. Beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseah on his right hand. And Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashpadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Maisiah, Kelida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelai, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept 
as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Amen. It's the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us briefly before we go in. Father, we pray, just like you did for your people in Nehemiah 8, for us today, you would bring about a renewed sense of uh, hunger and desire for your word, that your word would speak in a way that really uh, just creates a response in the hearts of your people. Uh, Father, we confess and we admit that we are fickle, that many of us, uh, it's just difficult to not um, tune out when it comes to the hearing and preaching and reading of your word. But remind us, God, that true, genuine fellowship with you, uh, that there is no shortcut to it. So bless our time together. Rid us of any distractions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, in my opinion, one of the most interesting spiritual phenomenons that occurs periodically throughout church uh, history and through God's people, it's something called revival, right? Uh, if you grew up in the church, this is a term you might have heard thrown around. Uh, back when I was growing up in the church, revivals essentially were just nights where you sing a lot of praise songs and they would call those revivals. Revival is a kind of broad and subjective term. A lot of people have different definitions of what revival is. Uh, and even though they can't quite define it, theologians know that it is a thing. When they track how God works and moves through his people, they know that revival is something that God does to his people and to his church. And so they kind of, theologians have spent a lot of time trying to wrap their heads around and define how to understand revival. And a very basic simple explanation I can give is revival is basically when God's people and God's church are in a state of spiritual slumber and that God kind of comes and wakes his people up. And, and that manifests as kind of like a spike of spiritual activity, both inside and outside the church. And when that happens, a, a revival is kind of taking place. Or if I can give you an image, right, if the church is the body of Christ, imagine that the body is in a spiritual coma, right, just lying there pretty much in a vegetable state, and God the great physician comes and he sees the state of the body and he essentially defibrillates it back into life. That is the picture of revival and new life in the church. The question is, how does God do that though? How does God wake up the body of Christ? What is the means that he often uses? And there's a lot of ways you can answer that, but I think from today's text you'll see the inevitable common consistent silver lining that's at almost every revival and is always central to it, is you probably guessed it, it's this. It is the living, the active, the authoritative word of God. Uh, James Edwin Orr, he was a pastor who a lot of people say he's kind of an evangelist and revivalist. He had a lot to say about revivals in the church. And he gives a definition looking at Nehemiah 8 that I think captures the summary of the text well. He says, and I quote, revival is essentially the spirit of God working through the word of God in the lives of the people of God. And looking at Nehemiah 8, he says, and this chapter is a great example of this. So then if the word of God, it's kind of the foundation and the front door to bring about spiritual revival, I want to point out based off this text, three specific marks of spiritual revival that we should strive after as a church and that we should seek to build a culture of as we're in a season where, hey, we really want to renew our church, spiritually speaking. And those three markers are, number one, you'll see one marker is a renewed hunger for God's word. A renewed hunger for God's word. Number two, a reverent response to God's word. 
And three, a joy and a strength that comes from God's word. Okay, so hunger for God's word, a reverent response. And then lastly, a joy-filled strength that comes from God's word. So first, a renewed hunger. So one of the things not many people know about me is actually I'm a closet foodie. Uh, I love food. I love to discover new food. I love to eat good food. Few things bring me more joy than to be able to enjoy a really good meal. And I know a lot of us are like that because I talk to a lot of us here. I'm the type of person where I like to know ahead of time what we're going to be eating, right? Because I like to mentally, emotionally, physically prepare myself and my palate. So, for example, one of the things I love to eat is pho. So if we're going to eat pho at dinner, I want to know by afternoon time so I can prepare myself. Right, so I can prepare myself for the aroma of like cilantro and lime and you know the hoisin sauce and nothing irritates me more than when the menu changes on me because now my system is all out of whack. Like I've prepared for nothing, right? I'm also the type of person where if I know we're gonna have a big meal at dinner, I'll have a light lunch. Why a light lunch? A lot of rookie foodies would tell me you should eat nothing. You need to vacate your stomach. And I say, oh, young foodie, right? <laughs> I was once naive like you. But I realized it's counterintuitive. You, if you don't eat anything, you can't eat that much at night. You can't, you don't have space. So any true foodie will know you got to eat like a light lunch so that you f- expand your stomach so that you're prepared to fully, thoroughly enjoy the meal that is to come. And because I love food so much, there are two equally tragic situations that can happen to any foodie. And they've happened to me before. Maybe they've happened to you. The first tragic situation is this. It's that you cannot enjoy good food because you are already full off of something else. Tragedy. <laughs> Back in college, there was a time when uh, some of the sisters, part of the ministry I was in, they wanted to surprise us. So they brought us this delicious food. And for some reason, my roommates did not tell me, we have delicious food waiting at home. So poor college student that I am, I used all my meal points in fall quarter, right? If there's collegians, you guys understand. So I filled myself up with like candy and chips and just... Basically not for, like, satisfaction, to survive, right? And when I got home and I smelled the delicious food that was there, I was so angry because I simply did not, even though I wanted to want the food, I couldn't eat it. Why? Because I was already filled with junk. That's a tragedy for a foodie. But second is if you have no appetite. And the clearest example of this is when you're sick. I remember when I had the stomach flu, it was the most out-of-body painful experience that the delicious food in front of me that I would crave and I would devour on any normal day, it literally, like, seemed repulsive to me. Like, I, I would eat and almost feel like I want to throw it up, and it looked so unappetizing. Why? Because I was sick. And anyone will tell you one of the first signs and symptoms of sickness is you have no appetite. I share these two tragedies and scenarios with you because it paints an accurate picture of what was so wrong with Israel prior to this moment and spark of revival that we're going to see. They had been a nation that turned to other false gods and idols for hope and fulfillment, a.k.a. they filled themselves with junk. And as a result, you eat candy all day, you're going to get sick. They had become spiritually sick. And this is evidenced by the fact that, therefore, the people of God who should love God the most and long to be with him the most had almost no desire and longing for him or his presence. But today we see a sign of life. You know why? Because you would think after the wall is finished, maybe you want to celebrate the completion of the wall. Maybe you want to throw a party. Hey, we're a nation now. They don't do that. Look at verse 1 in chapter 8. The first thing they do is all the people, they now gather together in the square and they tell Ezra 
bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. This is a powerful, weighty image. By then, commentators say there would have likely been around 50,000 people that would have settled within the walls of Jerusalem. So this is not a small group. And it makes it a point to say that all the people gathered as one man. So there is this kind of holistic, comprehensive, unified desire and hunger for what? For God's word. Now, a quick note on who this character Ezra is. For those who remember, and it's kind of tragic how many people don't remember, we actually preached through Ezra two years ago. And uh, I know people are always curious because my son's name is Ezra. And, you know, one of the reasons I named my son Ezra not just, wasn't just because we preached through it, but I was specifically tasked to do a deeper character study on this guy named Ezra. And as I was studying, I was so moved because I came to love the fact that Ezra, uh, he was a man who cherished, uh, treasured, and applied God's word in his life. No matter how much worldly pressure there was, no matter how much temptation there was to cave. And as I studied that, I was like, I pray that for my son. That's my hope and my prayer for him. Uh, that he would be a man that's just rooted and grounded in God's word. And I, and I hope and pray for our parents here that, you know, more than, hey, I want my, my, my child to be the best student or just to be safe and secure. Like that they would have godly aspirations that we can pray for them. But that's a side note. And, and so Ezra then... He comes back. He's been dormant in the background. And he comes to the forefront now. And in verse 2 of 8, it says, So Ezra the priest, he brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. Now the law that the text is referring to is what's called the Torah. And basically it's the first five books of the Bible. And back then they didn't have the full revelation of God. That was their version of scripture. And it's important to note, the people that are present for the hearing of God's word, it's not just a few people, right? Our church is kind of notorious. Anytime we present Bible studies, we kind of have the usual suspects. It's always the 10, 15 people, same people every time. And there's nothing wrong with that in, in a sense. But revival, if I can kind of make a note, it's often not isolated to just niche groups. It's a holistic and comprehensive thing. That's why the text makes it a point to say all the people nine times in just these verses. Now let me kind of uh, picture for modern day terms what's going on here. So you understand just kind of how crazy it really is. It'd be like if, let's just say today, I preach and there's this renewed hunger in our church. And so early next Sunday morning, we say, Pastor Tom, meet us in the quad outside because the theater is not going to be open. We're going to be there by 6 a.m. And all 150-ish of our members go to the quad area and they say, Pastor Tom, please, we want nothing else but just bring God's word to us. And so Tom comes out and he says, all right, our sermon text today is going to be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. Not very newcomer friendly, right? And newcomers like, is that like a three-year series? It's like, nope, that's today. <laughs> that's, that's the sermon passage just for today. And Pastor Tom then stands preaching from 6 a.m. to noon, literally, so roughly around six hours. And everyone's paying attention. No phones being pulled out. No one coming late. No one leaving early. And that is zero exaggeration of what's going on in this scene. Now in hearing that. I'm sure many of you guys are picking apart every element of that and saying, that is so over the top. That is so extreme. Now, can I ask you, though, have you seen what hunger can do to a person? Have you seen what hunger for a delicious meal does to a person? 
I've seen people drive to San Diego to eat a burrito. And nobody questions it. It's like, why'd you go to San Diego? Oh, I just, I needed to get a case of burrito. Oh, makes sense. I would do the same. I've seen people wait two hours in line to eat cold noodles in the sun. There are people who literally sacrifice money and get on a plane so they can eat sushi from this guy named Jiro. So don't tell me hunger doesn't make people do pretty radical things. So as we sit here confused at the people of God back then who seem to have an extreme value for God's word that's a little over the top, imagine if one of them were to time jump to today and sit in our pews, I think they would be equally confused in how little the church today seems to value and hunger God's word. Don't you think so? It's all perspective. To put it simply then, the one way, okay, there's a one-way road back to fellowship with God for his people. And it is always a return back to this. Why? Because for people who hunger for God, to hear and read this is to hear from God. That's why. There's no shortcut. Now, for those of you who are churched, and if you're like myself, I'm kind of the king of church because I'm a pastor's kid. I know all the right answers. It's hard to hear a message like this and not feel like heard that, done that, so you're telling me Bible is important. Okay, big deal. But I wonder if we can actually pause and go a little bit layer deeper and say, this is God's word, right? We all agree with that. This is literally God's divine inspired word that he uses to, to make his presence known and to communicate and fellowship with his people. And so another pastor, his name is Pastor Ray Stedman. He was struggling because his people were doing that. And so they said, Pastor Ray, what, what, why is the word such a big deal? You tell us in your own words why it's so meaningful. And it, this is what he wrote, and I, I quote from him. It's a little bit longer, but it was so helpful in ministering to me. Answering that question, what the Bible means to me, this is what he says. You know, the truth is not always easy for me to hear. Sometimes it pierces me and convicts me. Sometimes I wish I could evade it. And then I'm reminded that it was sent to heal me. Often it encourages me and heartens me. Sometimes it restores me when nothing else can do so. It confronts me with the paradox of revelation which intrigued me and challenged me. It exposes the secular illusions of the day and reveals the destructive ends to which they lead. It deals honestly with uncomfortable concepts and opposes the strongholds of tradition, correcting them with the authority of God. And he continues, I have learned to appreciate the Bible most because it brings me face to face with my God. That is the reason for scripture. It is to reveal God to us. The relationship is so real and personal that it seems to be a face-to-face encounter. My heavenly father becomes more real and close than any earthly father. I can all but see my Lord and Savior standing beside me and talking to me as I read his words in the gospel. Sometimes the words of scripture become so vivid and luminous that I feel like kneeling or even falling on my face before the majesty of God. No other book has such power to transport me beyond earth to heavenly places. If you are really hungering for God, your hunger is gravitated towards this. That's how the spirit moves and works. He makes you hungry for this. And by the flip side, how does Satan neutralize your faith? He makes you repulse this. This becomes disgusting to you. This becomes a waste of time to you. This becomes absolutely ineffective and unhelpful to you. So the question then is, how's your appetite for God's word been? When was the last time you hungered for it? Or if you were to answer that question to a non-Christian, for Christians who claim this is literally the divine inspired word from our God, and they ask you, really? So what does the Bible mean to you? How would you answer that? 
First marker of spiritual revival is when the people of God are convicted to return to the word of God. For as one pastor says, Christianity is in its very essence a religion of the word. A lot can be said about that, but first marker, hunger. Second is a reverent response to God's word. So of the many things that we kind of divvy up at our home, one of my responsibilities is to check the mail. And every time I check the mailbox, I kind of, maybe if you're like me and you check the mail, I have this process that happens in real time, which is I'll look at all the mail, and I'll kind of sort and categorize it immediately. So, you know, I'll see where it's from, I'll see who it's from, I'll see kind of how it's addressed. And based on that, I categorize, there's like a throwaway pile, like this is just not important. There's kind of like the, I should look at it briefly, but I don't really need to pay attention. And then there's the important pile. Like, i got to make sure I understand what this is saying. So, for example, if it's a Bed Bath Beyond advertisement, trash. <laughs> I just throw it away. If it's like an electric bill or utility bill, like, I'll take a glance, glance at it. But I don't need to, like, really study it. But if it's like a personal letter that's addressed particularly to me, or if, like, from the IRS, that's going to affect, like, our taxes and our finances, I put it in this special pile because I'm like, I need to really pay attention to this. Using that analogy, which category does God's word fit in for you? Like, just think about that. Is it like an advertisement where you kind of have to tolerate it to get to what you really want? Right? I mean, that's what an advertisement is, right? You kind of have to force yourself to endure it so you get to what you really want. So right now, as I'm talking to you, is this an advertisement? Like, you're waiting for the main event, whatever that might be. So you just got to get through it. So you, you could care less about what's actually being said. It's like how you, you view an ad. Or is it like a utility bill? Still important, but absolutely routine. It's going to be the same thing every week anyways. Something about the gospel, something about how I'm a sinner, something about how we want to rebuild. I just got to pay my bill, and then you could almost auto-pay it. Or does it fall under the category of this is important, and it requires my care and attention? How do you mentally categorize the word of God in your mind, and how does your response reflect that? You see, when Ezra reads and teaches from the law, it's evident how he categorizes it. In verse 6 to 8, it says, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And so for Ezra and the people, you know revival is happening. Why? Because the Spirit instills a sense of weightiness and reverence in their approach to the word because they viewed it as such. What? The very words of God. One commentator puts it this way. Ezra praised God for who God was. The great, the awesome, the sovereign God. There is no revival if you have a little God. A puny God who can be coerced and bribed. A petty God who, like some divine genie, exists to do your will and fulfill your every wish. Or even an understandable God who is not majestic or transcendent. A weak God who can barely keep up with his own creation. Rather, revival comes to the hearts of those who encounter the triune God in all his splendor, holiness, and might. So what does that look like then? How do we respond and revere the actual triune God of Scripture? What does it look like? Do we just sit there and be like, I have to be serious? Maybe. But I think there's at least three practical things that we can glean from this text of how the Israelites' reverence showed up. Number one, they showed up because they, they were attentive. Look at chapter 8, verse 2. It says, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, being attentive is probably the most difficult thing to do in this social media, multitasking, mentally fatigued age. Like if paying attention means to give your whole attention to something, like when's the last time you wholly gave your attention to something? 
Like, doesn't that even just boggle your mind that we don't do that that often? Now, what's some scenarios I could imagine? Like, imagine, say, wherever you have a lotto ticket, and they're reading the lotto numbers, and you got to catch those numbers because it could be the difference of you becoming a millionaire. In those 10 to 20 seconds, that's what it means to be attentive. You isolate all noise. Nothing else matters to you except that in the moment. Or maybe it's like the crunch time or a dramatic moment of a sports game or a TV show you're watching. Whatever it is, it's not rocket science to be uh, attentive and to pay attention. And so what Ezra is showing is when God is speaking, how can revival happen if you're not paying attention? It's as simple as that. To pay attention is to show reverence to who it is that's speaking to you. Everybody understands that. And I, as a pastor, I'll be the first to tell you how difficult it is not to mentally multitask even listening to a sermon. I understand. How difficult it is to pay attention even for five minutes a day to wholly devote yourself to God is speaking. I want to do that. I want to give him my whole attention. So that's number one. They showed it in their attentiveness. Number two, they seek to understand. So not only attentive, but they genuinely sought to understand and apply God's word. In verse 78, you see the list of all these people that I won't name again because it was a very tough task, right? But their sole purpose is that once Ezra teaches the law, people don't just go like a Sunday sermon, oh, that was cool, and go home. No. They then go on the ground level to help the people understand it to make sure it's clear, to make sure it makes sense, and that the people understood the reading. Imagine you went to a fine dining restaurant, okay. So my wife, Angela, and I, we recently got to go to a fine dining restaurant. It was amazing. I think it was the first time since Ezra was born. And I forget that fine dining restaurants, they're different from your average restaurant because they kind of go out of their way to tell you what your dish is made of. Like for a foodie like me, it's kind of cool, but it's also like, okay, I want to eat my food now, right. So they'll come out and be like this right here. This is not your ordinary dish. This is like a French couscous made with, you know, it's like a tiny little dish. And I'm like, okay. So imagine you go to a fine dining restaurant. The chef comes out and he's giving you this personal, in-depth explanation of like the intricacies, the source of the ingredients, the elements of the dish. And you are just like soaking it in and giving him your full attention. And he is like amazing. This person is engaged. And then the chef finally goes to the climax and he says, now do you want to try it? And you're like, No. What? That makes absolutely no sense. And yet so many of us do that with God's word. The power of God's word is not just in hearing it attentively. It's to then seek to ingest, digest, wrestle, apply it into your life. Food is not nutritious and effective if you just chew on it and spit it out. And in the same way, God's word is not just powerful if you just hear it, but when you actually seek to understand just, I'll tell you this, and Pastor Tom, I'm sure, would agree. Nothing is more encouraging for a pastor than when you give a sermon and somebody asks, can you explain a little more about what Scripture is saying there? Can you, can you, um, can you clarify to me, like, what is God calling me to do? I'll just be blunt. You know what most feedback I get? The sermon was so long. <laughs> and I get it. Length is important. We beat our butts and we do our best to make sure we are being respectful of time or whatnot. But I am so, I feel guilty before the Lord that my primary priority as a preacher at this church is that clock. That should be a factor. But I'm going to be honest. Sometimes people make me feel like it is the only factor. And that's troubling to me. That would be like 
your wife has something to say to you and you want to listen to her. And most of the times, okay, you got an hour window, but it's like she's trying to talk to you and it's like, hey, mm -hmm, whatever meat you got, you better fill it up. There's something troubling about that. The Israelites, they were attentive. They wanted to understand, digest, and really implement it, which led to the third in doing that, they have an appropriate response. Look at verse 9. And it says then after all of this, giving to the last part of verse 9, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now, I'm going to zero in now slowly on this picture of them weeping in response to the word, okay. It's helpful to know the general content of the Torah to understand why, why is Israel weeping right now. Now remember, they were a nation that had been exiled for, for 70 years. We are comfortable, SoCal, most of us Asian Americans. We've never been displaced. We don't know what it is like to not have a homeland. Like if you want to just be humble that just how much of a bubble we're in, just read anything about Afghanistan right now. Anything. We are just in a bubble. Even our parents' generation, they have to the nth degree understand more suffering, right? Like they, they understand what it's like to be in hardship and suffering. And so, so Israel, they've come from the war-torn, beaten-down state of being exiled from their homeland for 70 years. And they realized the reason that it happened is because we, we had left our love for God. We had chased after false idols. And now as they're finally beginning to rebuild... Ezra is now teaching them of their short history. And if I can summarize their history, it's this. As he opens the law, he reads, Israel, God has always been good and has done nothing but love you. You have done nothing but rebel, fall away, and turn from him. God has redeemed us since the garden, through Egypt, through a Red Sea, from the wilderness. Now he has restored you back to your homeland. And through it all, all you've done is complain be discontent and fall into sin. And imagine Ezra is teaching this objective reality in raw detail for six hours. And imagine if you're an Israelite staring at the still broken down state of the holy city, which is slowly being rebuilt purely by the grace of God, not because you deserve it. I think you would weep. Israel wept because they were convicted and reminded of their sin through God's word. Church, can I tell you, if you would take the time to pay attention to and truly understand and digest God's word, the initial appropriate response for all of us as fallen sinners who fall short of the glory of God should be similar. If the spirit is alive and moving in your hearts, the word of God cannot help but bring broken sinners oftentimes to a lowly state of tears in the face of such a holy and gracious God. But here's the beauty of the text. As the people weep, notice Nehemiah and Ezra don't say, that's right, you sinners, keep crying or mourn. Like maybe I would do that, but that's not what they do. And that's not to say there shouldn't be remorse over sin, and that's going to be talked about next week. But in today's text, look what they say in verse 10 to 12. They say to them, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so suddenly this weeping for that moment turns into this rejoicing. And it says, because the people had understood the words that were declared to them, which leads to the third and final marker of spiritual revival and might be the most important of all. When God works through his word, there's not, usually a, there's not just a renewed hunger. There's not just a reverent response. But the people should have an increased sense of joy and strength. A joy-filled strengthening from God's word. 
Now, you might have heard that famous line before, the joy of the Lord is your strength. What does that mean? And that's kind of what I hope to make sure we really understand and digest. It's like if I've given you five dishes, this is the one. Make sure you really eat this one and take it home. Because no matter who you are, no matter what state you're in, particularly if you haven't been to church in a long time or you're feeling spiritually distant or unworthy from God, I want to tell you today, if you would listen to this, you can tap into and experience the joy and the strength that this is talking about. Now, I have to give credit that this illustration is not original to me. It was written by a sister in the faith. And the image and analogy that I'm going to borrow from her that's going to carry on to the rest of the message is, she basically said in Nehemiah 8, imagine that this scene is like a marriage vow renewal. Okay? Now, I need to make sure you understand what this is because it's going to carry throughout the rest of the message. If you don't know what a vow renewal is, basically it's when a married couple, after being married for X amount of years, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, they say, hey, let's recommit ourselves. Let's state our vows again. Because when we first got married, sure, we loved each other. But now after really knowing each other for 10, 20 years and we're still together, let's see, do we still mean it? You know, let's really reemphasize the vows that we have for each other. And I bring up this illustration because one of the most helpful ways to understand God's relationship with his people is like a marriage. It's like a marriage where there is a deep commitment involved. There are promises made. There are vows that are shared. And for those of us who call ourselves Christian, which I think a lot, a lot of us do, the day that you understood the gospel and the day that you gave your life to Jesus was the day that you chose, in a sense, to get married to him and to devote your life to him and to commit to love him. Now, like marriage, there's going to be rocky patches to say it simply. And that's a very nice way to describe Israel's relationship and marriage with God. And yet despite all the rocky moments that literally brings them to a point of weeping, in Nehemiah 8 we see that God, the bridegroom, shows up through his word to renew his covenant vows with his people. Now I used to shoot wedding videos. Every wedding video has a formula. And the most important part of that formula is when the bride's getting ready. You guys know what I'm talking about? I used to feel so, like, strange. Like, I'm in the dressing room, and everything the bride is putting on, I'm just, like, like filming it, filming it. She puts on her ring. Hey, can you put the ring on back? Okay, okay. It's like one minute of just the bride getting ready because it's a big deal. Imagine if Israel is the bride, how Israel must have felt getting dressed up for their vow renewal ceremony with God, knowing just how much that they have failed. If Israel is the bride, for six hours they've been hearing vows and commitments through the reading of the law that they have not kept. They've failed to be faithful to God. That's why they're weeping. That's why they're putting their heads down. And not just Israel, but us. We're the bride of Christ. And imagine you're face to face with God right now for a vow renewal and his word is being read as he's staring at you. And here's the vows that are being read that every Christian committed to. If you didn't commit to these vows, you're just not a Christian. I hate to put it that way. As you're holding the hands of the bridegroom, it reads, do you still promise as you did to love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, mind, body, and strength? Do you promise to trust that God is good, especially in hard times, rather than trusting in man and leaning in your own understanding? 
Do you promise to devote yourself to care about what God cares about and to hate what God hates? Do you promise that this relationship will not just be business-like or transactional, but you'll regularly commune and fellowship and spend time with God? And imagine this continues for six hours. I don't know about you. I think my head today, if that were to happen, it would sink lower and lower and lower, and I might even weep. So how the heck do you find strength and joy? Well, I love the fact that the text doesn't say like a lot of self-help news today. It doesn't say, well, just be joyful. That's fake. Or it doesn't say find your inner joy. I think that just doesn't work. It says the joy of someone else is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. What does that mean? Let me picture it for you. So imagine you're the bride. As your head is down, you take a slow peek up at your husband. And what you should receive is flaming eyes of judgment. Right? Flaming eyes of judgment. How could you? You promised me this. You have not kept up to it. All you care about is yourself. You just use the church. You just use Christianity to just do whatever you want. But it's not about me. And as you're looking up, expecting and fully deserving to see that, instead what do you see? You see that God and Jesus, they firmly grip you even harder. And their eyes are just, it's just filled with love. Bridegroom wipes away your tears, holds your hand even tighter, looks you in the eyes, and reaffirms the vows you could not keep for you, confidently aware of your shortcomings. And what you see in this picture is then now a bride who can experience joy and strength because of her Husband's joy and strength. That's where the security, joy, and the strength comes from. Now for the Israelites, maybe they could find momentary joy and strength because they knew, yeah, God's a covenant-keeping God. But to be honest, Israel still had a lot of room for doubt and question because God was still a little bit of a distant figure to them, if you know what I'm saying, right? Like it would be like if a husband writes love letters to you and says, I commit to you and I promise I'll be there for you. But he kind of lives overseas. Like that's kind of the nature of maybe the relationship Israel had with God. But here's the beauty for us post-cross Christians. That's not the case anymore. You know why? Rachel Gilson, I quote her. Here's what she says the gospel applies in this scenario. I quote, a few centuries after Ezra's reading to the people, the husband himself visited that same city. He longed to gather his bride in his arms, but she turned away. For her sake and for the sake of all who would trust him, he instead allowed his arms to be violently spread in death. No one forced him. He did it all for love, paying the debt for his runaway bride. And when he looks at us now, washed by his work, he declares, beloved, we've been secured forever because Jesus perfectly kept our end of the vows. And that love transforms us into vow keepers, albeit imperfect for now. Your string of failures can be obliterated by confession. Your days of apathy can drop off your record through affection and forgiveness. I breathe that in and I feel strength rise. The strength of not merely being known, but being treasured by the Lord. Whether it's a reminder or it's your first time hearing it, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is not a 50-50 relationship where you pull your weight or else God's going to disown you or be mad at you. Or you're going to have to feel like you're not a good enough Christian. The gospel is that time and time again, you will fall short of keeping your end of the relationship. You will find yourself filling yourself with junk and chasing after the things of this world. And you will, especially in this post-COVID season, can we not all relate to this? We'll be cold and apathetic towards the very God that we proclaim to love, that we proclaim to live for. 
And so how does this all tie in? To put it simply, therefore, revival happens through God's word because God's word serves the singular purpose to point us to Jesus. That's why it's there. Our perfect bridegroom who is with us and helps us through all the ups and downs in life. This is a window to the good news of the gospel. Now, if you're not a Christian today, and I, I think some of us aren't, can I ask, like, do you have that kind of security and the hope that the Bible tells you you can have in being in relationship with Jesus? Like who or what in this life and in this world, no matter how many times you fail them, no matter how much you fall short, will affirm and secure you time and time and time and time again? I just can't think of any. And the beauty of the gospel is that it calls you today, come as you are. That's it. Like, no credit check, <laughs> no resume. Bring everything as you are, your failures, sins, and burdens. You don't need to lift a finger if you just trust and faith that God is who he says he is and that you need his grace in your life. But if you are a Christian and you've been struggling maybe with apathy and you can't remember the last time you cared to pay attention to the word of God, not just as a mere book, but as the medium through which God himself works to speak through you, to convict you of sins, to point you to Jesus, and to fill you with joy and strength. Ask God to soften your heart and heart. Sometimes you can't do it yourself. It's, it's, it's burdensome, not in a bad way, but in almost kind of like a helpless kind of way. When I talk to some Christians, even in this church, and the, the diagnosis that I can make scripturally is just a hardened heart. Like there's literally nothing that can be said, nothing I can do. Like only the sledgehammer of God's grace through his spirit can wake you up out of that state. You got to pray for that. And as we continue this season of rebuilding and seeking renewal for our church, can I propose a simple question? You know, we talk a lot about, this whole series is about like rebuild, renew, restore, revival. We use a lot of our words and we're talking really big. But, you know, I can't help but feel like if we just continue this and we're just building these nice fancy walls and we're like, look at our walls, but it's not populated with the people of God, like why bother? Why bother? That's really how I feel. Like we talk big and we say we want to do things for God. We want to do amazing things. How come the church is not moving? How come we're not sure? How come we're not doing this? But can I ask you, why would God? Pour out his presence and move among a church that does not hunger for it. Why? Would you do that? Like if you're a chef and you're going to expend all this time and energy to come up with this beautiful meal, would you give that to someone who is not hungry? That would be a, a slap to the face. And so there is something seriously twisted about us. Please God, work and move, work and move. But you don't even hunger for God in the first place. So that's where I say, let's just be honest, church. Either say, we want to move in the direction of revival. Break our hardened hearts. Help us, God, because without you, we cannot do it. Or just say, church and God is just a means to our end. We just want comfort. We just want security. We don't want to be ruffled. Leave us alone. Just pick one. That's what I really feel like. Don't play this bingo game. Now, it's not to say we have to be perfect. It's not to say that, oh, we can't struggle here and then. But we have to be very honest with ourselves. What do you actually want? 
Because it sounds like some people sometimes say they want this, but everything seems like they actually desire this, and it is very, very confusing probably to God. Do you want my presence to come? Because that has implications. Or do you not? J. Edwin Orr, like I said, he studied revivals, and here's what he says, and I'll close with this before we pray. He says, we don't have to convince an unwilling God to come and refresh us with his presence. He's for it. But he cannot be manipulated. But when sincere hearts who know they cannot do his work nor his will without him humbly pray, he will answer. That being said, you know, as we close, can I ask us to spend a little time in praying? A couple of things that I want to lead us to reflect on and pray for. Uh, a reflection question I would ask is, well, what have you been filling yourselves up with these days? That would be step one. Maybe you have no appetite and hunger for God because you're just so filled up with junk, if I could be quite frank. Maybe not even evil, sinful junk, but it's just junk. It just takes up all your appetite. Then pray for a renewed appetite and hunger. For those of you who are caring to really help our church to grow and be in revival, can we pray that God would bring new spiritual life as we renew our relationship and commitment to him? Because, again, the precious thing about our God, he is always willing it is often us that isn't. So let's take some time to pray uh, and then we'll close together.